Hi, I'm Deb Crow, and welcome to season two of the Heart Centered Leadership Podcast. This is a podcast where we connect, learn, and laugh together with strong leaders from all over the globe. Here, you will learn from peers you haven't even met yet. You will gain new tools to add to your leadership toolbox. Because whether you're a C-suite executive or a first-time entrepreneur, we all contend with challenges and there's always room for improvement if we choose to seek it. So please pull up a chair and listen in. This is the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. Welcome back to Imperfect, the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about Chip Conley, and I'm sure you know who he is. He's a New York Times bestselling author. He's got a new book out that we're going to talk about, fairly new. And he's a hospitality maverick. He has helped Airbnb's founders turn their fast-growing tech startup into a global hospitality brand that we all know and love. He's currently starting a new initiative called Modern Elder that I want to talk to him about. And I could go on and on telling you how great he is, but I'd rather have a meaningful exchange and a beautiful conversation. So Chip, so happy to have you on the show. Oh, Deb, thank you for inviting me. I love, love, love having thought leaders and entrepreneurs, and there's so many different spaces that you could go into. So thank you for sharing your time with us today. And and I know our listenership, which has grown to an amazing 45 countries, is going to learn a few nuggets of wisdom from you today. Tell us about a little bit about your leadership journey when you chose to leave kind of what you were doing in the hospitality industry mm-hmm. and you decided to go over to Airbnb. What was the conversation? What was the the feeling in your heart to, I'm going to go do this? So yeah, my background, uh, Deb, was that I started a boutique hotel company, one of the first in, in the United States uh, when I was 26 years old in the mid 1980s when the boutique hotel movement was just getting off the ground in North America. And I ran it for 24 years. I was uh, the founder and CEO. We created 52 boutique hotels around California. And I wrote books about it. I gave lots of speeches about it. It was, you know, to be quite honest, my sense of self and my self-esteem was completely attached to my business card. (laughs) Um, It didn't mean I didn't have a full life beyond my career, but it meant that how I saw myself and my esteem were very defined by that. And then I had a flatline experience. I died at age 47. And so about 22 years into running the company, I had a series of nine flatline experiences over 90 minutes because of an allergic reaction to an antibiotic I was on after I had a broken ankle and a septic leg. And so long story short is I had a hotelier's wake-up call. My wake-up call was, okay, I loved doing this for the first 20 or 22 years of running this company. I don't love it anymore. It was during the Great Recession. And there were a bunch of other influences, I won't go into the details, that were just sort of saying, you know what? Something doesn't feel right anymore. And all of a sudden, I realized it was time to rip off the Band-Aid. The Band-Aid was, in essence, a Band-Aid that covered my whole darn body in the form of my identity being basically the founder and CEO of the second largest boutique hotel company in the United States. And so the process of me ripping the Band-Aid off wasn't easy. It took two years after my flatline experience and a lot of heart. I needed to move from the place of you know, my mind continually telling me, you know, don't run away from the thing you've built over all these years 
to recognizing that my heart, when your heart stops, you do have to listen to your heart. <laughs> and listening to my heart, I came to this conclusion, like, I actually don't want to do this anymore. And so I sold the company in the bottom of the Great Recession. And um, if anybody's ever heard of, or well, I'm sure you've heard of it, but it, hopefully you've watched the movie The Intern with Robert De Niro and Anne Hathaway. De Niro, in the, early in the film, as the senior intern says, musicians don't retire, they quit when there's no more music left inside of them. So I was not a musician, and I didn't really have music inside of me, but I guess I had wisdom inside of me. And um, I wasn't sure who to share it with. I was at that point now 50 years old, 52 years old, actually. It was two years after I sold the company that I got a call from the, the founders of Airbnb. And they said, Chip, we've got this little tech startup that wants to be a hospitality company when it grows up. It's going global. And none of us in the com our small company have any background in hospitality or travel. None of us have ever run a company. None of us, frankly, have ever led a team. <laughs> but they were doing a great job. So to their credit, they had the company was really taking off. This was about nine and a half years ago. And so I joined. My head said no. My heart said yes. Head said no, because like, I think this is a really stupid idea. Airbnb, people staying in each other's homes, like, why not stay in a hotel, even a cheap one? You know, even Four Seasons, you know, started, started as a motel, a motor lodge, you know, you can stay in, in, in just about anything. But like, I didn't really get it. And then I got it. I spent some time there. And quite frankly, about a month into it, the founders said to me, you know, first of all, I was twice the age of the average employee. There was 52, average age was 26. The founders were about two dozen years younger than me. And so they came up to me and they said, Chip, we hired you for your knowledge, but what you really brought was your wisdom. It's like, oh, okay. You are our modern elder. Wait a minute. I don't want to be a modern elder. What are you talking about? Like, what is a modern elder? And they said then, Chip, a modern elder is as curious as they are wise. And that's when I said, sure. If that's what a modern elder is, I am a modern elder. And that led to seven and a half years, uh, four years full-time, three and a half years as a strategic advisor for me, basically helping them steer their rocket ship to become by far the most valuable hospitality company in the world. How many times have we said in our lives, one of two things, why didn't I think of that? That was so amazing, so easy to create. And then looking at the model of Airbnb, like you did, how many Airbnbs have you stayed in to date, by the way? Oh, me? Oh, over a hundred. <laughs> right? Yeah. It's, it's such a brilliant level of thought leadership. Like you said, from someone who approached you that was 20 plus, 25 years younger than you. Yeah. Yeah. And it was interesting also from a heart perspective to move from the place of being the founder and CEO and also known as the sage on the stage because I was, you know, I wrote books, I gave speeches, et cetera. And then I joined Airbnb and I'm no longer the sage on the stage. I'm the guide on the side. I'm the person on the side helping these three founders get, you know, the kind of acclaim and, you know, leadership prowess that allowed them to, to create a company that has, has become a verb, you know, let's Airbnb it. So long story short is I had to get my ego out of the way. I think that was really one, one really important step. And I really had to ask my question of how am I supposed to serve in this situation? So I'm a big fan of servant leadership. And that was part of what I was there to do. It's so interesting because you were the, the senior guy being brought in for strategy and experience. And it was kind of an aha moment from the younger startups, the owners, if you will, of their languaging, their wisdom. And it was almost just almost like a serendipitous moment, if you will, like it's brilliant. And I love that you said your head said no, but your heart said yes. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I was scared though, too. I, I did actually, I'm going to see my father tonight. My father and my mother are both 84 and about a month or two into it. I said to my dad, dad, I don't want this to be, I don't want my last career thing to be a failure because I feel like I don't know if I, I don't know if the company's going to succeed. I don't know whether I can succeed in a tech company since I don't have any tech background. And my dad said, how can you turn your fear into curiosity? Mm. How do you turn your fear into curiosity? Which was a really beautiful way to re-examine whether there was a way for me to ask better questions of myself. And so I did actually amp up the curiosity. And, and I think that was one of the things that, that Airbnb really appreciated about me because I was constantly asking questions. And that's what a good strategic advisor does is ask questions. So it's almost like you had your, your coaching hat on and you were learning and great advice from your dad. Yes. Dads always have the best advice. <laughs> My second question is going to have permanent residency on this show because I think it's so important. And I've asked every single leader since May of 2020, what imperfections does Chip bring to his heart-centered leadership? I would say one of my biggest imperfections today still is impatience. I'm a a rather impatient person. And so we are going to be creating two MEA campuses. We'll talk about MEA in a moment in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And I I have a painting on the wall that just says patience (laughs) because actually it's a place that requires patience, as did Mexico where we created our first MEA campus. And I think the idea of patience for me, patience is like, oh, come on. Like, you know, what are you talking about patience? Uh, entrepreneurs generally are not patient. But I, I think that recognizing that there are times when patience means I'm not reactive. It's a beautiful quote from Viktor Frankl in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, that really speaks to me about, and it, it sort of speaks about patience. Which he says, between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is your power to choose your response. And in your response lies your growth and your freedom. So the difference between reaction and response is often patience. (laughs) And there are times when patience means that you will not be as reactive. It means you will give yourself time to holistically think about something. It means you will not overwhelm the other person with all the energy you have, <laughs> which is what often what happens when we're impatient is I haven't really met a person who's impatient and very moderate in how they're responding. If you're impatient, you're just sort of like, you've got pent, something pent up. Mm-hmm. So I would say for me, learning patience is an, a lifelong you know, responsibility and opportunity. I think back in the past when I was younger, I'm 61 now, I think my ego got in the way a lot. And so I think humility and patience are both important. I think I've built the humility over the last 15 years. The patience, I still have ways to go. And that's what I love about this show is, you know, people get misconstrued about leaders and they think that, you know, they've got to the top and they've done this and they've done that, or they have this, they have that. We still work on our feelings, our thoughts, our emotions, our imperfections, because none of us are perfect and if we are perfect, what are we, what are we evolving as, as human beings? We're not. We're kind of in a holding pattern. I love the way that you frame that. And I love that you said it's been about the last 15 years. So kind of mid-40s. Yeah. And it's interesting. And I, I join you. I'm going to call it the MEA space because at 50, I became a yoga teacher mm-hmm. for two reasons. I wanted to work on my impatience, fellow entrepreneur like you. 
but I wanted to be a deeper listener. Because when you're a deeper listener and then Mm -hmm. you add patience to that, Mm -hmm. you can sit in the observer's chair at any time. And just, I like to say, just take on that full equanimity. Yeah. We call it learning how to become a first class noticer. Oh, I love that. Noticing what's inside of you, noticing what's going on with the person in front of you and noticing what's going on in, in the field, all three levels of listening. And, but I, I like the first class noticer language. I do too. It feel it feels like a level we all want to get to. Yes. And I, I think it's more meaningful when you hit that middle age space, mm-hmm. you know, we sit in that, that renewal, that, that place of reminiscing about what we did. And I don't think we're as judgmental on ourselves because our self-awareness goes up as the judgment goes down. So Mm -hmm. it's such an interesting kind of renewal that you've done. And I know that you've shared publicly about some of your journey in in business and in health. And it just gives relatability to everybody else that you're no different than all of us. You just took a different route and wanted to be an entrepreneur. And I also think just to close off the, the talk about impatience, I think it's the inability as we're growing in business, because we are our own boss, we never want our creativity and our independence to be tipped. We always need to have that balance. And when it's not, I think that's when we're impatient. Yes, I would agree. I love that. Okay, let's talk about your book, Wisdom at Work. When did you get that feeling, that intuition in your mm-hmm. gut that this was going to be the next book? And, and I love the title. And you talked openly about the wisdom that you got from transitioning to Airbnb, kind of an aha moment for you, really. Was that kind of a staple to you to sit down and write this book? And why is it different from your previous books? It's interesting. This was my fifth book and I, I'm a man, so I can't, I can't culturally appropriate this, but I'm just going to use it anyways. I got pregnant. (laughs) <laughs> every time I get, I, I have a book that sort of germinates inside of me. It's like, I feel inseminated somehow. And, and on the other side of it, usually there's about nine months later, there's a, there's a book idea that's just ready to, to cook um, and go and me be sort of like the, the babysitter for this book idea. When it came to this book, uh, most of my books have been right at the intersection of psychology and business. This book has a psycho, uh, some psychology built into it. But it's really a little bit more of a personal tale and a stage of life question. And, you know, we're living in an era where we're living longer, power is moving younger, especially in companies like Airbnb, and the world is changing faster. And that means there's a lot of people in midlife who are completely bewildered and and confused and, and quite frankly, feeling irrelevant. And I lost five friends to suicide during the Great Recession, 2008 to 2010, all men. I'm all in midlife. And I have to say that I wrote the book for them. Now, this is, this is not a book about, you know, suicide ideation or anything like that. It is a book, though, about how to make yourself relevant again, how to feel a sense of repurpose, of feeling repurposed, as well as how to look forward to the second half of your adult life with maybe the kind of excitement you had when you were 17, about to turn 18. So that's why I wrote it. it. The book is very much a, it's called Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder, very much my story at Airbnb. But it also has a lot of academic um, ballast to it in terms of going, me going out and learning about uh, a variety of things that are relevant to you know, intergenerational collaboration. 
because quite frankly, at Airbnb, while I was the modern elder, I was the curious one sometimes. I was learning from people younger than me, 20 and 25 years younger than me. And yes, I was also the, the mentor at times. So I call myself a mentor, a mentor and an intern at the same time. And that's really how the book came about and became a bestseller. You know, I've had my last three books of helping bestsellers. I was really lucky considering I'm not a writer by nature. I mean, I love writing, but you know, it's something I do on the side when I'm doing my primary gig, which is being an organizational leader or an entrepreneur. So it was really written in many ways for people out there who I knew are struggling with what does it mean to be in your 40s, 50s, 60s, especially. Although we, you know, the people who have been reading it have been in their 30s and 70s and 80s as well. But it, it's very much about how to become relevant again. You know, it's interesting. I hadn't planned on sharing this with you, but I, I think it's appropriate. I never saw myself leaving the medical rehabilitation world as a case manager. I loved what I did. And I was a neurotrauma specialist. So I mm. looked after people who'd had brain aneurysms or any type of insult to the brain from a workplace accident, a car accident. And I was one of few that wanted to do kids as well. So I had a heavy caseload on any given day, but the movement for me was I took on some short-term disability claims just as a reprieve for a little bit of lighter work. Mm. And that's what led me to this path. I had three VPs and two CEOs who all went off in a year's time on short-term disability claims. Mm. And it was kind of like, you know, this big message from above, which I see now, but I, I didn't see at the time. And they all went off on stress and the stress didn't go away. And the short-term disability claim turned into a long-term disability claim. And then they all got diagnosed palliative. And I landed up sitting with all five in hospice chip and I lost, wow. I lost them over a 10 month period. So what wow. you told me about your five colleagues, like mm. that hits me in the heart because mm. it's ingrained in my heart. Like I know yours is, mm. and it's got some sentiment that's in our legacy work that we're doing now, because my, my name is either a noun or a verb. I'm never called Deb. It's always Deb Crow and let's Deb Crow this. And when I held all their hands at the end of life, they told me two things. I didn't speak my truth and I tolerated a toxic culture. You mm. need to, you need to Deb Crow this. Mm. And if someone had told me I was going to transition into being a podcast and a consultant and a coach, I, I would have laughed because like, I always thought I'd, you know, end my business doing what I was doing in the medical world. So it's always so much comfort in talking to someone else in middle age, because we all have a shift. We all have a reshuffle. We all have a pivot. And, and these are all words pre-COVID that we did. And then you add in COVID. And I think it gives us, it opens up our cognitive and emotional bandwidth. And like you said, your head said no, but your heart said yes. And now you have it aligned. And I just think that that is so powerful, Chip. And how many mm -hmm. people are dying with untold stories? Sure. Right. And, and now you're opening a space because I think people get to midlife. I have a lot of friends that are lawyers and they're like, what the hell am I going to do when I'm done? I only know how to practice law. Yeah. And, and it's like, OK, let's look at all the transferable skills you're you're packing up and bringing over here. But they can't open the bandwidth because they've been in this yeah. stringent, structured, sometimes adversarial place. Right. We call it same seed, different soil. 
you over the course of a lifetime are um, developing a seed and that seed is your wisdom. It's your gift. It's the things that you have built as part of your experience. And, you know, so many of those things are valuable no matter what pot you're in. If you repot yourself into, as I did, a tech company like Airbnb that aspired to be a hospitality company, I could have said, well, my functional skills aren't going to be very helpful because I know the hotel business. But a lot of my functional skills were incredibly transferable. How do you run a meeting? How do you get things done in an organization? How do you lead in an inspiring and heart-centered kind of way? Long story short is we actually have a lot more wisdom and, and more gifts than we know. We just get so used to them because they're part of our lives. We don't see how valuable they're going to be to someone else. Absolutely. And it leads so nice into my last leadership question. And I have to preface this because I shared with you, I'm in your friend Seth's course right now. And if I didn't make a ruckus, then I've really learned nothing. And I'm halfway, I'm almost done. We're almost done. The end of May, we're done. I want you to share with us, was the seed planted for Modern Elder from some of the discussions you alluded to with Airbnb, Mm -hmm. because you Mm -hmm. wore so many different hats, even though you were the same person. Is this the legacy work? Tell us about it. And before you tell us, I want I want to say two things. Number one, I will be coming for a week and then I'm going yes. to come back and I want to teach a class on heart-centered leadership. So I'd like to come and make a ruckus. I have officially said it and now I will <laughs> and now I will let you share. Yeah. Um the website's so beautiful. Like it's oh, so welcoming. There's there's nothing unanswered. Like I really felt embraced and warmed and I loved reading about all the different courses and what you're doing. So share with us where you're at now. What does the future look like? And is this, is this Chip's legacy? I, I would say it is Chip's legacy. Although, you know, it's really at age 61, you be, be careful about being too abrupt in knowing what your legacy is. Eric Erickson, the famous developmental psychologist said, I am what survives me. And that's really speaks to legacy. And, and you don't really know what's going to survive you until you leave the planet and see what survives. And you're, you're, uh, Next round of people will be able to tell you, you know, this idea of for the Modern Elder Academy and or also known as MEA came about when I was writing Wisdom at Work. I was writing down in Baja, a place where there's a lot of Canadians, a lot of Canadians come down to Southern Baja and hang out there as snowbirds. And I was down there because I had a home just off the beach and I was writing the book and I went for a run on the beach uh, this is near Todos Santos, about an hour north of Cabo San Lucas. And I went for a run on the beach and I had a Baja Aha. I had an epiphany. And my epiphany was like, okay, well, um, why is it that we don't have any kind of midlife wisdom school? Um, uh, you know, I'm writing about how important wisdom is and how it is and how it's important to repurpose yourself. But who actually is helping people to do this? Coaches do it all the time, which is great. But how are we doing about, you know, with scale? And so I decided to create the world's first midlife wisdom school, uh, basically all around my home. So basically bought land near my home, homes near my home, renovated them. And next thing I knew, I had a five-acre campus on the beach. And we've had uh, 2,200 people from 33 countries make the, the pilgrimage to Mexico to co- go through our programs. And yeah, the, the real, the four key pillars of the program are how do we reframe aging? Because if you actually can shift your perspective on aging from a negative to a positive, you actually gain seven and a half years of additional life. 
Um, this is based upon uh, Yale, uh, Yale's Becca Levy's work. Um, secondly, we help people to shift from a fixed to a growth mindset. Thirdly, is we help give them a TQ, TQ masters in TQ and in transitional intelligence, understanding how do you navigate your midlife transitions? Because you know, in midlife, we have an enormous number of transitions. And then finally, how do you integrate the idea of regeneration in your life? Not retirement, but regeneration. And we even have regenerative communities uh, as part of our MEA overall package of services that we provide our, our alumni. So long story short is it is a legacy. It is the thing that uh, is got me very excited because we are proving to be a catalyst for two industries that really deserve to be disrupted a little bit, higher education, because higher education tends to focus only on young people. Mm-hmm. So how about higher education toward people in midlife? And secondly, um, retirement communities. Why not create regenerative communities? So, uh, yeah. You know what I love the most about it is, is thinking back into my medical days and people would say things to my clients like, well, when are you going to retire? And are you going to take your pension? Are you going to get the government money? And, you know, my higher educated, higher analytical thinkers used to say, I like working. I like thinking. I might change it up. Maybe I'll be a mm-hmm. consultant. So we have this generational value that needs to be thrown out with the garbage, mm-hmm. because I don't know if you've heard of Hazel McCullion, if I'm saying her name right. She was the mayor of Mississauga, which is like a, a suburb of Toronto, till she was 97. Wow. She's now 101. And the Greater Toronto Airport Authority has just renewed her for (laughs) another three years. I'll send you the link to be on their board. She's brilliant. She's 101. And with all the work that I've done in neuroscience and neurotrauma and memory care, it's when we stop living and learning and thinking and feeling that's when when things go awry my first client that i had in memory care as a case manager was my grade 11 chemistry teacher Mm, wow and he quit teaching he quit reading he just stopped and if you look at all of the work i know maria shriver has dug deep into this Mm -hmm. all the alzheimer's research is the brain is a muscle that needs to be utilized until yeah. the day we're done. Yep. And, you know, it's not just doing crosswords and Sudoku, it's intellectual stimulating conversation. So that's why I love the podcast. Cause every yeah. day, aside <laughs> from work, I'm learning, I'm having new conversations. I'm maybe I'm creating some new pathways, but I just think the model that you've created is so brilliant. And what I love about it the most is you're right in that space So you're bringing relatability, humility, because you've had some bumps in the road and how, how nice it is to share your story and to have 2,200 people from 33 countries already. That's amazing. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I am going to come. Yes. I am going to come for sure. Come in the fall, Deb. The fall's the best time. It is my favorite space in, in Canada. I have to tell you. Come in the winter. Well, you know, you did mention about Canadians. We, yeah. we don't have night. It did snow here this week, if that makes you feel wow. any better. But it's spring. Okay. I just, I love the model. And you know what? It's such a welcoming, it's a welcome mat on so many levels, physically, emotionally, cognitively, spiritual, to know that you can sit in a group with like-minded individuals 
and kind of go, I'm not alone. And you thought like that. And, and going back to that speak of, you know, leaders and executives and people from all walks of life. I always like to say, we all have the ability to be a heart-centered leader. It's not based on our schooling, our title, our stature. It's none of that. It's the soft skills. And I love that you've incorporated the TQ because I think we can get very fixed in a mindset, especially those people who've never been in entrepreneurship. We've, we've rode that train because we've had to really be self-aware the whole time we're in business. But when you're working for other leaders and we're talking about it now in this reshuffle, I love the way Brene Brown frames that. Are we in a resignation boom or we're really in a, in a renewal and a reshuffle because people are putting their own needs and behavior to the forefront and it's long overdue. So that's the goodness that I take out of this pandemic is a lot of good things have come out of it, especially self-care, self-awareness, and almost getting back to that 1950s time chip where, you know, the millennials do it so well, they get the work done, but they're home having dinner with their family. Mm. So it's, it's almost like history repeats itself, right? So interesting. Okay. I'm going to switch to my fab four, but I really could talk to you all day. Okay. First question. Tell us something that we don't know about you. Uh, I am both a great grandfather with a two and a half year old great grandson, as well as a biological father of a seven and a 10 year old. Oh, wonderful. I'm going to be a grandma in July. How great is it? I'm hearing how great it is. It's beautiful. (laughs) Oh, that's wonderful. Congratulations. Yes. Okay. Second question. And I always love asking this to someone who's written several books. What is a book that you've read any time in your life that has really impacted you? And would you share with us the title and the author? Yeah, I I mean, I mentioned it earlier, but I'll elaborate now. So Viktor Frankl was a a concentration camp survivor. He was a a psychologist, a Jewish psychologist in, in Vienna, Austria, and he ended up in a concentration camp. And um, he wrote about his experience there, both from just how harrowing it was to be in a concentration camp to understanding that meaning seemed to be the fuel that, that helped people have hope and to stay alive. And so um, I actually think the book Man's Search for Meaning is the best leadership book I've ever read. People don't think of it as a leadership book. But it absolutely is. And it led me to creating an emotional equation. One of my past books was called Emotional Equations. And the emotional equation that sort of starts that book is despair equals suffering minus meaning, which basically says that meaning and despair are inversely proportional. If you are feeling a lot of despair, the key is to find meaning. If you can find meaning, you can get through just about anything. And so I just think it's a beautiful book for leadership, especially during difficult times. And, and it's come up on the podcast before, and I agree with you. I do think it's a leadership book, and I think it depends, you know, what lens we're looking at, depending on our age and our work experience, our life experience, where we're at, because it's one of those books that you can read over and over again, and you're going to grab another nugget based on something that maybe you didn't see before, or you read it and didn't take it in that context. Exactly. Okay. Third question is super fun. I can't wait to hear what you say about this. I, I'm granting you a wish and you get to have dinner with a leader. Now, let me qualify this for you. So the leader could be living or they could have passed away. Who is that leader that's top of mind? And what is the dinner conversation? I would have dinner with Gandhi. 
And the reason I have dinner with Gandhi is because he said quite famously, uh, said many things famous, but he said, first they ignore you, then they ridicule you, then they fight you, then you win. And he was talking about the British. And actually, I used to use that quote every time I would do it a leadership or employee meeting at Airbnb. They said, this, as we grow across the, uh, across the world, you know, we're going to have people who are going to fight us. And they'll, but they'll first ignore us, then they'll ridicule us, then they'll fight us. Um, so long story short is I just found Gandhi, Gandhi's history and his story about uh, this, this little man and what he did to basically change a whole country and, and frankly, even a religion with the Hindu religion, I, I just have such a respect for him. And I, I would probably talk to him about leadership. It would be such a fun dinner conversation as a yeah. yoga teacher. I, I would love, you know, oh, yeah. you know, when I took my yoga training, it's so funny because people think you're just buying a cute little mat and doing some fancy poses and living in a downward dog. And the first 100 hours is strictly theory and philosophy of yoga because the mm-hmm. definition of yoga is science of the mind. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's so intriguing. So before I close out the show, Thank you for sharing your imperfection, your genuineness and your heart and and really sharing the backstory about going to Airbnb and how the head said no and the heart said yes. Like if that's not a heart-centered statement, I'm going to I'm going to just classify that one under intuition management that I think you've honed really really well. Mm-hmm. I am definitely coming to see you at MEA and just thank you for your leadership and your legacy. And so glad I crossed paths with you. Mm, thank you, Deb. It's been an honor. And I'm going to have you close out the show by finishing this sentence for me. Heart-centered leadership is? All about how can I serve. You've been listening to the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. I'm Deb Crow. If you like what you heard today, please rate and review the show. And I'd love it if you'd visit my website at debcrow.com, where you can sign up for my newsletter and get access to the Heart-Centered Leadership Toolkit, all free of charge. Thanks for your time, and we'll see you again.